In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Tea and Murder, an Agatha Christie podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy-Norman, part book club, part interview show, all Agatha Christie. I am thrilled to welcome author Martha Jocelyn, author of many books for young people, including the Aggie Morton Mystery Queen series. Uh, The Seaside Corpse, which is the fourth and final Aggie Morton book, just won the Edgar Award in the U.S. for the best juvenile mystery of 2022. The Aggie books are also in development for a TV series, which we hope to hear more about soon. And after six years of writing in 1902 on the south coast of England, Martha is currently attempting a mystery set in contemporary downtown Manhattan, which is very exciting. Welcome, Martha. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We are so, so glad to have you here and to talk about your books and also Crooked House, which is the book that you chose for this podcast. So thanks for being here. I'm going to start by asking you what I ask everybody, and uh, that is, how did you come to Agatha Christie and what is your relationship to her work? I think I was about 12, and my first Agatha Christie was 450 from Paddington. Ooh, good and I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure where I got that first book, but there is a shelf at my cousin's cottage with a masking tape label along the <laughs> edge that, that says Grandmother's Agatha Christie's. <laughs> and, That's so uh, cute. <laughs> the grandmother in question has been dead for about 25 years, but the labeled shelf still remains. And I remember that book, what the image I remember from that that book so strongly is the trains passing and seeing the lit up car with the murder occurring in the train going in the other direction. And that is so vivid to me. And I still, because I, you know, I lived in New York for many years where subways were doing that. I'm constantly on a train in one way or the other. And I think about that moment all the time. So, oh wow, uh, yay, Agatha Christie. <laughs> <laughs> My relationship now is, um, well, after, I mean, I read a lot when I was a teenager, and then I spent a few decades rereading the occasional title and seeing the odd movie. And then seven or eight years ago, I had the big idea, and I became <laughs> very intimate with Agatha again. So that's, <laughs> uh, do you want to go into the big idea? <laughs> I do. I want to go into the big idea. And I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about your series, Aggie Morton, which is a, a young, uh, a young adult, or you say middle, middle age. Middle grade. Yeah. Middle, middle grade. grade yeah. Um, yeah. Series based on the life of Agatha Christie, which is Aggie and a young Hercule Poirot type character, um, Hector Perrot or Perot, I suppose. Um, but yeah, tell us about the series and how you came to this idea. It's such a, it's such a lovely series of four books. Well, the initial idea uh, came just in a conversation with my then editor, Tara Walker at Tundra Books. 
And I had never tried writing a mystery before, even though I had written way over 40 books. Um, so we were trying to, th we, we were just chatting. What, what sort of sleuth would you have? Because obviously the sleuth is the key to success. So who would my person be? And in a synchronistic moment of invention, Tara and I both pounced on this idea of Agatha Christie as a 12-year-old detective. And one second later, I knew that her sidekick would be a fastidious Belgian boy, <laughs> <laughs> an immigrant from Belgium mm -hmm. named Hector Perot. So mm -hmm. uh, that's how Aggie Morton Mystery Queen was born. Uh, the first book takes place in her hometown of Torquay. And the second one happens at her sister's house during a blizzard at Christmas time. Uh, the third one is set at a spa hotel in Harrogate. And in the last one, Aggie and Hector are lucky members of a young scientists league who participate in a paleontological, paleontological dig near Lyme Regis. Yeah. So the idea was obviously many references to Christie's life, as well as many uh, mystery tropes, all meant as a gateway drug for young readers <laughs> to the queen of crime. Yeah. And, and adult readers will also recognize the genesis of several plots and book titles sprinkled through the Aggie series. So I used her you know, moments in her life or snatches of dialogue or one of Granny Jane's village parallels, all those things sort of ignite a spark of inspiration in who I hope will be a writer when she grows up, my fictional Aggie. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of those references, because I love them and they're so, if, if you're an Agatha Christie fan reading these books, they are so fun to spot. How did you choose which references you were going to use? Was it something that you'd kind of been thinking about for a while beforehand, or did you dive back into her work and kind of mine it for those references? Well, I read about 50 of her novels probably while I was preparing or during writing these books. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really plan any of those. It was just once in a while there would be a moment and I go, oh, a murder is announced or like, you know, could suddenly right. think it would just suddenly, or she would be talking to Hector and, and she'd be able to say, what do you think of this, this idea for a story? What if a group of strangers were alone on an Island and one by one, they begin to die. And he would yeah. just go, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and yeah. Dismiss it entirely. So, yeah, but I, it just, it really, the moments came because I was so currently well drenched in Agatha Christie, I could um, just use use bits as they came to me while I was writing. Yeah. What I loved about reading your books as well is, and, and I've talked about this previously, but how drenched in location Christie's work is and how you use that so well um, in your books too. And how did you choose the locations? Because they are so directly related to kind of Christie's work as a whole. Right. Well, that Torquay was the obvious starting place because yeah. that's where she, what, that's where she lived when she was 12 years old. Mm -hmm. So, and I actually visited Torquay and I found the big, you know, the big, there's a rock on the street outside where she, where her house used to be, her house of Ashfield. And um, then I, so I walked from that house down to the harbor to sort of see what, you know, what was the hill like? Where's the church? How does it feel? Mm -hmm. When, where can you see the trees? And, and um, that seemed like an obvious place to start. And then of course I wanted to dive into the other tropes being, cut off from everyone during a blizzard in a country house. I wanted to do a country house. Mm -hmm. And then for the third one, I wanted to do a hotel. And it took me a while to choose. I was thinking maybe they would go, you know, maybe she would actually go to Belgium or to France and go to a spa hotel. And then it suddenly occurred to me, oh, wait a minute. There was, you know, that nine day disappearance in Christie's later life. And she's discovered in Harrogate 
And that would be perfect. What if as a kid, she went there and had a wonderful time and found a corpse and everything was yeah. really fun. <laughs> so yeah. that of course, that's where she would return as a woman later in her life. And so oh, then I, 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 I did the same thing with the, with the fourth one, because of course, her life with Max Malowin, her second husband was so full of digs and, and, you know, looking beneath the ground for, for, for where our history is. So I didn't make it archaeology. I made it paleontology. So they're actually recovering an ichthyosaur from the, from the um, ground outside. I mean, be really beneath the ocean it, uh, because the tide plays a big part in the seaside corpse. But that, so that was, that's how I chose my settings. And it was really frustrating for book three and four because of the pandemic, not to be able to go to the UK to mm. spend some time in either Harrogate in a spa. What better research could you do? <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> or, or in Lyme Regis. But I, um, in both cases, I contacted people who lived in those places and, and had some really great help in doing research. Oh, that's so, that's so cool. And I don't know if you happen to have read, there's a book that came out fairly recently called The Christie Affair um, yes. by Nina de Gramont, which is kind of almost like an opposite type of book to what you've done. Also a fictionalization of her time in Harrogate, but um, told through the lens of the woman who is the mistress of Archie Christie. And uh, I, I loved it. I thought it was such a fabulous book. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, it's yeah. great. Yeah, highly, highly recommend that one. Um, in terms of, I loved all your little references to uh, the character that Hercule Poirot becomes, and kind of what I. One of the things I really liked was that you would you were laying groundwork for things that we know eventually happen um, to these characters, or we know that they eventually become particular about certain things, but you let it be vague enough the way a child would necessarily be discovering kind of who they are. So. Um, one of my favorites was when Perro talks about, um, you know, Hercule Perro always talks about his little gray cells and you kind of <laughs> allude to that. You don't say little gray cells, but he talks about, no, well, brain is, is made of gray matter. Um, and you kind of see it go into his head a little bit and, and just that little reference. That's not exactly the reference, but you know where it's going later in his life. I, I loved right. those. And how did you choose what of the Poirot character you were going to pull out? Because he is, he's not an exact replica, but he's, you know, a, a childhood version. Right. He's not a replica. The way I like to think about Hector is that he... It's sort of a meta concept that Aggie is gathering ideas for her stories yeah. and poems and that this friendship when she's young with this Belgian boy becomes the inspiration for her future creation. So he's actually a real boy who she uses and mm. turns fictional so that he's actually yeah. the source of Aggie's imaginative character and yeah. not the result of it so that yeah. you know he's there first and then she takes him and turns him into what becomes the most famous detective in the world um, yeah and but because he was because I wasn't making a child Hercule I wasn't stuck with his big ego for instance he's <laughs> you know he, he's not He's not a totally self-aggrandizing show-off. He's quite a nice little boy. He's so and sweet. <laughs> he is such a sweet little boy. I loved him. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people like him. I mean, because so many people are really attached to Hector. I mean, to Hercule Poirot, that mm. they that they find him very appealing. Um, and I sort of did the same with with her Granny Jane where where you know in yes. real life Agatha Christie's grandmother and and friends her cronies were the inspiration for Miss Jane Marple and mm -hmm. so I wanted of course to have a similar relationship so yeah Miss Marple comes into you know into she becomes a third in their sleuthing team quite yeah. often <laughs> 
And she she's often giving Aggie like the little nudge as opposed yes. to like being a, yeah, exactly. The way that, you know, her, her and Hector are more kind of working together. Yes. But, and, yeah. but Granny Jane occasionally will answer, ask a question or yes. make a, make a, make a little snide remark and it yeah. sets them in a, it sets them in a, a new direction. So. Yeah. And I, I like how often, especially I think it's even in maybe the first time it happens, Aggie kind of looks up in admiration like it was an unexpected moment, and then it kind of it, it you know grows from there. Um, but yeah, I thought I thought you just did it so nicely. Um, in terms of writing about Agatha, but not taking on her voice, uh, how do you approach that as an author? Because I think people come to a book like this maybe unsure whether they're reading like a a take on Agatha Christie. Right. So for one thing, of course, it's not actually Agatha Christie, but the books are set in 1902 and 1903, Mm -hmm. which is the year that Agatha Christie was 12. Mm -hmm. And her father has just died and Queen Victoria has just died. Mm -hmm. So she's actually learning about the world as an introvert in quite a protected situation. She reads stories, she eavesdrops. She learns about the world secondhand, um, but she's a child. She's a Victorian child in mourning. And so she's clearly a different person from the woman who begins to write books 15 years later, having been through a world war. They're just completely right. different people, no matter what. Yeah. So, right. so my character is Victorian, really. And... Mm you know, just just at the beginning of the Edwardian period. And Christie yeah. was writing in the 1920s. Uh, so much was different. And Aggie's mother worried about her uh, morbid preoccupation. As, yeah, I love that phrase. <laughs> as a preteen. But think about what Christie saw during the war as a medical person. Right. And so she, it's not fanciful anymore. She's a real, she's a real complete, I mean, I just keep saying a completely different person, but they were both, but both my character and the real Christy were highly observant, endlessly curious, uh, somewhat lonely people, Mm -hmm. um, but very funny they both have, you know, find humor in odd places. It was yeah. never my intention to mimic her style because it's, you know, it is told in a child's voice and she's just writing at a different time in her life. She's telling us what happened at a different time. So yeah, it also I, liberates that, yeah. me from like trying to mimic her, which I could never do, of course. So it, completely. It, lets me be something else. Yeah. And, and actually Sophie Hanna, who was also on the podcast last season, who's doing the Hercule Poirot books now spoke about the same thing. And she basically said, it's, you know, I, I thought of taking on Poirot as a tool, as a writer's tool. There was no need to mimic the voice. You know, I'm writing, I'm not, there's no point, there's no point in trying to do that. Um, and she wouldn't do it. Uh, and as you have not either. And I think, uh, it's, as you say, she's a different person, but writing as a child has kind of gives you the opportunity to to also build in all of this like anticipatory element to to the books, which is really nice as well. Um, do you hope that your books will be a catalyst for younger readers to go on and find Agatha Christie? Uh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> As they say in North America. As they say, yeah, duh. <laughs> so, yes, of course. Yeah. And it is and it is a great one to start with, you know, to, mm-hmm. to make. It's a great bridge. Almost everyone I know who's read Agatha Christie, they started as a young teen. And it is it is the yeah. bridge to adult reading. So it makes complete sense. Absolutely. What are the, some of the kind of differences you found in writing? Because Agatha Christie, I think a lot of people do find her work young, but she wasn't writing for young people. So what are some no. of kind of the differences you found in writing murder mysteries for a younger audience? 
It's funny because a lot of the same things that she does, there's not long descriptions of Mm -hmm. corpses in her books. (laughs) I always have, you know, I have one sentence usually that's slightly grim. And other than that, it's, it's very uh, child friendly. Um, And she's, she's pretty much the same. I think I've never actually, you know, I'm not familiar with the rule book for <laughs> for writing murders for for young people. I know that some people I don't think really there is one. <laughs> <laughs> no, people so, there are some people that really object to it. They're usually people who are not parents of kids. Weird kids, kids are really fascinated, <laughs> you know. Kids really like yeah. to it's it's morbid and it's fascinating and you're reading about it in your little cozy chair. So Yeah. It's it's really a chance to look at at what you would do in that situation. If yeah. I saw a dead person, what would that feel like? And right. who would I call? And what would I do? And how would I find out who did? You know, there there are a lot of questions that a kid thinks about. I'd say for in a book for young people, there definitely has to be a pretty clear moral and ethical resolution. Mm. Sometimes mm. that's left a bit iffy in Christie or certainly in, in darker writers of adult uh, novels. The yeah. worst crimes all have to be punished in a book for yes. kids, I think. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, I agree. And and when I spoke about this with Robin Stevens, who also writes Christie-inspired oh, books yes. for children. I love her books. Um, they're so fantastic. Um, she also said that she likes to kind of um, always make sure that the victim is an older person. So she doesn't like to kill kids in the books. And that, I think that... that's, a good, that's a good rule of thumb. And, and that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Yeah. Most of mine are, my victims are pretty unlikable, mostly the ones that you've exactly. met. So yeah. it's, it's that I take that out of it. So speaking of unlikable characters, I think this is a good time to dive into the book that we chose, or the book that you chose, rather. I'm so glad that you chose it, Um, Crooked House. So I'm just going to give a really brief historical note um, on Crooked House. Uh, Crooked House is a standalone mystery book published as a serial first in the U.S. in 1948 and then in the U.K. in 1949. It features a first-person narrator named Charles Hayward, and the book was immediately well-received by critics and was, in fact, one of Christie's favorites among her own works. Um, In the foreword to her book, she says, quote, of one's output, five books are work to one that is a real pleasure. Writing Crooked House was pure pleasure. Um, The ending of this book is one of Christie's great kind of shock endings. And as Dr. John Curran, who was on this podcast previously detailed in Agatha Christie's Complete Secret Notebooks, it was such a shocking ending that her publisher actually requested that she change it, Um, but she refused. And uh, Curran notes that this kind of speaks to how integral the ending really is to the book. It's really its reason for existing. Crooked House was adapted for BBC Radio 4 in 2008 and again on film with a screenplay by Julian Fellows in 2017. Uh, That film, which was pretty faithful to the book, starred Christina Hendricks as Brenda and Glenn Close as uh, Lady Edith. And I actually think that film is darker than the book itself, but um, I think it was a fairly well-received film. But if you wouldn't mind, would you give us a brief one minute or so synopsis of Crooked House? I think this is closer to um, 90 seconds, but... (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll allow it. We'll allow 90 seconds. (laughs) Here we go. I actually wrote it out. Okay. Amazing. Our narrator, Charles Hayward, is hoping to marry Sophia Leonides, but first must help discover who poisoned her grandfather, wealthy 87-year-old patriarch Aristide Leonides. Every member of the household hopes the deed was done by Aristide's second wife, Brenda, who is 55 years younger than he was. Living in various wings of the vast manor are Aristide's two sons, Philip and Roger, their wives, Magda and Clemency, as well as great aunt Edith and Sophia's teenage brother, Eustace, and 12-year-old sister, Josephine. Also, Nanny a few loyal servants, and the children's tutor, Lawrence, who may or may not be romantically involved with Brenda. 
Everyone, of course, has a shadow of a, at least a shadow of a motive for committing the murder, including Sophia. Um, and when the when the missing will turns up and declares her to be Aristide's main be beneficiary, that sort of clinks her clinches her her motive. Uh, Charles's father conveniently is a commissioner at Scotland Yard, <laughs> yeah. though it is <laughs> an inspector taverner and the slightly ghoulish Josephine who do most of the sleuthing, along with Charles, though he's pretty bad at it. Uh, love letters are discovered, Josephine is harmed, and another successful poisoning occurs before the shocking truth finally comes to light. Well done. You could write the blurb for the back of the book. That was very good. <laughs> Um, so that was perfect. Tell me why you chose this book. Well, first of all, I just want to add to whatever spoiler alert you put at the top of the episode. <laughs> yeah. We cannot discuss this book without spoilers. So if yeah, you have agreed. not read it, please go read it first and then come back. Cause that's pretty essential. And, um, Sorry, what did you, what was your question? I just wanted to. I, why did you choose why did, the book? Oh, because I chose it because there mm -hmm. is a child murderer. Yes. And so um, Josephine is the killer and she is a pretty amazing, extreme character. Mm -hmm. um, I really, really found her appealing when I first read her and about her. And I've always really liked her. So that's why I chose Crooked House. It's one of my favorite what, books. <laughs> what do you like about her? Um, I, I like that. I mean, she shares that morbid preoccupation with my character, Aggie. I like that <laughs> yeah. she's, she is, she's pretty rotten child, but she's yeah. very smart. And she, certainly considers herself to be smarter than anyone in the room. She's definitely smarter than Charles. Charles is yeah. such a dink. And so, <laughs> so um, it's always appealing when a kid gets the better of a grown-up. I mean, in, in this case, it's, you know, unfortunately she has to kill a couple of people, but in order to sad. do that, but um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but even her motive her motives are so childlike and yeah. her, her method, her methods are so childlike. You know, she thinks, she thinks them partway through because, but not all the way through, you know, she's very 12 years old in the way she, in the way she behaves. And yeah. yet she's incredibly smart and wily and cunning. Yeah. The thing. And do you think, because I think if we were like, if this book was written today, it would kind of be the narrative of like, Josephine is a sociopath. We would like pathologize the behavior. Um, I don't think that Christie really does that, but I think that she adds enough of the kind of, you know, the, the, the need for people to think she's really smart. She keeps telling people she knows who did it. Um, how do you think Christie kind of approached that psychology or do you think she was thinking about it as psychology or just as an interesting character? I think Agatha Christie believed in evil, or she certainly mm -hmm. presented characters who believe in evil. Um, Miss Marple believes in evil. That she does. She says a, it a lot. It, she <laughs> yeah. says it a lot. It's something that exists. And I, mm -hmm. I think it's possible that Agatha, with her religious leanings, um, perhaps thinks that there are some certain people who are just, just born that way. Yeah. Do you think that's and why th the book was ended the way it was with no, I mean, Josephine is never brought to justice in the typical sense. She's never arrested. There's no question of what will happen. Will she be arrested? Will she be hanged? Will she be sent to a mental institution? Because, uh, lady Edith takes the decision into her own hands to kill both herself and, um, and Josephine. Do you think that was kind of Christie's way of dealing with the potential question of what to do with a child murderer? I think it, I think it must've been, I think, yeah. I think there really is very little choice. And yeah. it, it just, because the shock 
the shock is almost not even that Josephine is a killer, but how the book actually ends mm. is an almost bigger shock that mm. that Lady Edith must have known or certainly figured it out way before Charles and Sophia or even yeah. the police. And so <laughs> so they um, so that ending really was the only way to to end it in. Yeah. Unless we were going to have another whole, you know, treaties on on psychology and justice for ch- children and all that sort of thing. It's right. it's just it's just perfectly done. And so speak a little bit about Charles, because you are so unimpressed with him as a narrator. <laughs> and you're also unimpressed with his romance with Sophia. Speak a little oh. bit about that. <laughs> well, he really is a bit dim-witted. And he's very, <laughs> yeah. he's, <laughs> because he never catches on. No, he doesn't. When presented over and over again, he's fascinated with this child. But he's very, he's very dull. It's, it's, it's an unfortunate thing because when, when the book begins, our first, I mean, it's a bit weird that they, they've met out in Egypt, Charles and Sophia, and they decide very civilly, oh, I won't ask you to marry me now, but in two years, and we shall encounter each other, and you know, I will ask you then, and she's oh that's perfectly suits me, you know, it's, (laughs) and then he's finally back in the UK and he reads about her, her grandfather's death and says, oh, you know, this, this first encounter we were going to have this evening, if it's not, if this is not a good time, just don't bother. And she delightfully climbs out the window and down the drain pipe against you know the police order to stay in the house and she comes over to meet him in the restaurant where they're having their romantic so-called romantic first reunion <laughs> so so there's you know we get, we have a feeling that oh she has a bit of gumption and but they don't even you know hurl each other into into <laughs> a passionate embrace they just sit down and have this sort of awkward civil conversation until finally <laughs> so british <laughs> It's so British. And and in fact, he, they never they never have good repartee ever. Yeah. They just there's nothing occasionally I took her in my arms is about the most the sexiest that they ever get. And there's never <laughs> any, you know, humor. Even Tommy and Tuppence have better humor. And there's certainly <laughs> nothing, you know, it's nothing compared to the relationship between uh is it Leonard and Griselda, is that, are those their names in the body and the vic, uh, the murder in the vicarage? That the, oh, the minister yeah, the, and the, his the vic, wife, the vicar and, the his, vicar wife. and yes. his wife. Yes, there's there's so much. They have a great old time. Those they two. have a great repartee. I love their banter. It's they so are cute. like they're hot, but these yeah, guys, she's always like, threatening Charles. to like go flirt with other men. I love that about her. <laughs> yeah. So Agatha yes, Christie no, can do it. She can make. She can make, but she did not do it here. So why no. did she choose not to? I don't know. Yeah. Because they're. It's so interesting you say that because for whatever reason, this book always calls to mind for me, the moving finger. And I think it's because of the the narration. Um, mm. And, and also because of the similarity of the romance, which I find to be totally unconvincing. Um, in the moving finger, I talked about this in the first season as well, that I just found the, because he thinks of her as a child. Jerry thinks of this girl as a child at the beginning of the book. And then by the end, he's going, oh my God, she's going to be my wife. And it's, I find it really just bizarre. Yes. It borders on creepy. It does border on creepy. And this, I don't find to be creepy, but by this, similarly, I just find it to be unconvincing as a romance. Um, Completely. We just don't get any indication of why they enjoy each other's company. Um, which you would right hope then. to do <laughs> with someone you're going to marry. Um, yeah. And yeah, so sometimes these kind of male narrators who kind of get involved with the sleuthing, there's something about them perhaps that, and, you know, in, in the Crooked House, we have the nice element of Charles Hayward's father is the assistant commissioner of Scotland Yard. So we kind of get why he's involved, which for mm-hmm. the moving finger always made me laugh because he literally just kind of waltzes into the 
into the police interrogations and says, like, can I sit and enjoy, join you? For <laughs> and they're like, sure, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're like, are you busy? Um, so at least this one made a little bit more sense with that. But but I, I don't know. I found the narrative structures and narrative, um, just the narrator himself to be very similar in both of those books. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you agree with that. But, uh, but I totally agree that the romance does not speak to me. What I will say really works for me in this book is the dynamic of the family and the way they all live together in this little crooked house or very big crooked house. Um, <laughs> it's for... For whatever reason, although the, the the twist ending is so shocking and dark, I find the characterization of the family to actually be very nimble, very light, and quite enjoyable um, in terms of like how they all interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree that I think it's a you definitely get the sense that they all know each other. There's sort of mm-hmm. there are things that they put up with and other things that that they find pretty appealing and that mm-hmm. Aristide obviously was a very powerful character mm-hmm. who heavily influenced them all, but, but not entirely negatively. Like there's a, there's a lot of admiration and love for him. Yeah. And so that, that helps. The only relationship that I felt sad was not explored. Cause I like, I like the dynamic between the two brothers. I have mm, no idea why, why there's, a need for there to be six other dead siblings in, in that generation. <laughs> I know, there's that, so many. That was just completely unnecessary because they yeah. play no part whatsoever. It's not even no. like a confused will or any of that. But yeah. the relationship that that I feel we didn't get a good enough glimpse of is between the two sisters-in-law, the Magda and Clemency, because totally. usually, you know, women in a situation like that will either be you know, they'll find something, they need each other. Yeah. Especially since they're, since they're ganging up against the second wife, their, mm-hmm. their so-called stepmother who's younger than they are. So that yes. would be, I mean, there's not really a, a good element of that uh, duet, but um, otherwise I think it all, it all works among the family. Yeah. I, I agree. Yeah, I I completely agree about Clemency and Magda. I that was it was unfortunate that that wasn't explored, especially because they're such specific characters. Um, I I do always love how Agatha Christie always has an actress somewhere, and like I, her opinion <laughs> yes. of actresses is so fascinating to me. Um, and just like you know, they're always either completely fooling everyone by being in in a costume, or they're like having histrionics. Um, but I, I like Magda as a character. I thought she was convincing and I thought she was fun and I would have liked to see her and Clemency, um, yeah, go at each other a little bit or, uh, I don't know, or collude. Have some kind of, yeah, or collude. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And kind of like, you know, uh, I'm trying to think like, I don't know. And after the funeral or there's a lot of books in which those family dynamics where the sisters in law become kind of the backbone and kind of because the men in their lives are kind of failing. Um, and uh, that could have happened here. And I think the, I suppose the the main backbone of the whole family was meant to be Aristide. And despite him being dead, still managed to be, which is like quite an achievement. <laughs> right. Um, and then obviously was kind of passed down to Sophia, which was his wish. Um, but that's a really interesting point. Um, were there any other elements of the book that you found like particularly interesting or perplexing? I never entirely understood the letters because I, I, for a long time, I was kept wondering, did Josephine actually write the letters? Do the letters exist? Are they in love? What happened with the letters? So, um, and I, I still did not have a really clear idea of yeah, of how romantically entwined those two were, but um, that's Brenda and Lawrence the tutor. Yeah. So, um, so that was one thing. I did like I did like the fact that um, Curran writes in his in you know in the note in her notebooks that she did not start writing this book with Josephine in mind as the killer. I, right. I love that 
And she's not, Josephine and Eustace, Sophia's two siblings, don't show up until really well into the book. Yeah. Many, many pages, like 40 pages in or something that yeah. before you even are, that you even meet them face to face. So, yeah. So that, that's sort of interesting. And, mm. and I like that, you know, that, that she was considering Lawrence as a murderer. She was considering clemency as a murderer. And it's just, you know, now that I've written these four mysteries and they're the only mysteries I've ever written. So I was really learning on the job. Yeah. But, um, but it really helps to know who your killer is. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> but apparently, I mean, this is not the only time that she sort of, for her, for Christy, she had the setting or she had the means of murder. She had the little social setup, but she mm -hmm. didn't necessarily know who the killer was or who the victim might be. And so yeah. that's just a really interesting way of coming to it. So, yeah. Takes a lot of practice, I would imagine, to free start wow. freestyling mysteries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so impressive. It really is. Yeah, for me, I, I agree with all your points. I also, the one character for me that just I didn't feel really needed to be there, similar to as you said, like, why did they need eight siblings, was Eustace. Um, I, I didn't feel like he provided enough of a red herring or enough characterization to really merit the extra relationship to add in. It just felt like an extra character. Um, I suppose it was in order to make Lawrence relevant, um, but you could have done that just as easily for Josephine, I think. So that was, for me, I, I've always wondered why Eustace is in the book. <laughs> just, Interesting. Um, cause I, I, yeah. cause I thought, I mean, I agree that he could have been definitely better used, mm. but I don't think he was pointless. I mm. think his, his scowling adolescent <laughs> self and you know the way he completely dismissed and was angry at Josephine mm. it, it was it's a fairly weak and obvious red herring but mm. I think it was at least supposed to make us never focus on Josephine you know that it uh. it it was a you know if we if she was the only little kid then yeah. attention might have come her way a little bit better whereas as having him there, he could be mean to her and mm. mean to everyone. <laughs> yeah. So, but so there, you're right it was reasonable it, to imagine that that he could be the murderer. I think you're, and I, I think you're right that it also provides more of a, a like a bouncing board for Josephine, so we can see her more in interaction with and like another child or a younger person, um, as opposed to just being this like hyper precocious young person who's only talking to adults. Um, in terms of like, you know, as we said, Christy doesn't necessarily write for young people, but young people read her works. Reading about a book where the child is the murderer, how do you think that kind of falls into her works that are appropriate for kids? Um, anecdotally, using a... <laughs> we, we'll have to do anecdotally. Surveying myself. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think in general, actually, kids prefer to read about kids and mm. wicked kids are particularly appealing mm. because they are, as I mentioned earlier, I think they're the testing ground for, for, wow, this is a really evil person. And how does she get away with it? And she is so much smarter. And just all the things about Josephine constantly one-upping Charles or yeah. <laughs> the, the, the eavesdropping aspect that no matter what conversation is going around, there's, you hear the stick crack or you hear the door click and you know, Josephine is listening. Well, kids love to eavesdrop. So that's mm -hmm. very um, inspirational. <laughs> Josephine. Aspirational. Yeah. <laughs> She's a really aspirational, aspirational character. <laughs> right. <laughs> And that's so that's um, I think you're right. Yeah. And again, you can read about her from the safety of your own home. And so yeah. it's not you're not going out to to test anything. You're just it's just there's something gleeful and delicious in recognizing the awfulness of someone else. Yeah. Ooh, so well said. 
Well, I'm really glad you chose this book because I I really enjoy this book, um, despite thinking that the narrator is a bit of a dum-dum. We're used to that with Christie's books. I mean, every Hastings book, that's basically what we're getting is kind of like a dum-dum narrator. But that's part of the fun is that they're being outwitted all the time. Um, now, Hastings, I know that- Hastings- Sorry, Hastings yeah, sorry. has no. an ounce more charm and humor than Charles. Charles has zero appeal. A- absolutely. Okay. No, Hastings is very funny and he's very um it's like having a golden retriever as as the <laughs> a narrator. He's just like so likable and so sweet and uh you know, Poirot's always like petting him on the head saying, "Nice job, Hastings." Um so I I love the Hastings books, but I just mean that, you know, we're kind of used to that um I wouldn't say unreliable narrator, but non-genius narrator, perhaps. I don't know how you would phrase it. Clueless um, narrator. Yeah, guileless. Um, but um, so I, I do know that you are, you have listened to the, like our first season of the podcast previously. And I'm just curious as a listener, what you would like to see more of from the podcast in terms of like the books we cover or the topics we cover. Like, do you think we're, we have anything that we we need to talk about? Well, what I found particularly engaging are the times where you talk to people who have not, in fact, read any <laughs> or certainly not many uh, Agatha Christie's. That's a, it's, oh, it's a really unusual take to uh, to engage someone for a different reason and then force them to read something. <laughs> I know, I do force people. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then have the conversation. And so I find that very appealing. I mean, obviously, the All About Agatha podcast with the completest Mm -hmm. uh, sensibility and the complete nerddom is also very appealing. But um, for for the massive general public who have read, you know, half a dozen Agatha Christie's or seen one or two movies or only, only know Suchet as Poirot, then I think it's great that you're pulling in. I, I like that. So more of that. Suchet, okay. by the way, I do love Suchet, but uh, he's not my preferred. My imagined <gasps> Hercule Poirot would be played by um, Willem Dafoe. I that's love who, that. I mean, listeners can't see that my face, to- but my eyes just got very, very <laughs> wide. That is fascinating. Say more about that. Well, because... You can be, I've always found Suchet, he's a great characterization, but he's not what I imagined when I was reading the books. And I I didn't come to, I didn't see a TV series, you know, until however many years ago, 20 years ago. So I was reading Poirot for 40 years before that. And so who I imagined was someone more compact, sort of wiry and, self-confident but not I don't know I I, it's very hard to he's the movie star who comes into my mind when I think of Poirot wow and I would that is interesting would love him to be cast in a movie well I would give anything to see (laughs) Willem Dafoe as Poirot I think that is such a fascinating idea um and I, I mean Willem Dafoe is a fabulous actor and he like contains so many multitudes in every role um and, you know, I have to say, I absolutely adore David Suchet. And I think his characterization is very compassionate, um, yes. which I find to be sometimes lacking from the books. And I think he, like, adds a humanity to a lot of the, to yeah, to, to Poirot that, that isn't necessary, that, that really is great for screen. Um, but I wonder, have you seen the um, John Malkovich ABC Murders version? Yes. Yes. Okay. And what did you think of that? Well, again, I think, I mean, I think he's a bit of a tortured soul. Yeah. More tortured than the book character is. Yeah. Um, there does seem to be a modern need to make Poirot somehow tortured because that's true. In, <laughs> I know. In those other <laughs> movies that I won't mention by name. Yeah. We don't but, need to talk um, about them. But, but I definitely like Malkovich, um, as a as an alternate, yeah, sort of, I would pr- yeah, I yeah, it's acceptable. I don't think it's genius, but I think it's acceptable. <laughs> yeah, well, it airs more on the side of the Defoe character, yes, like how I would absolutely. imagine Defoe would play him, for example. Um, 
Wow. I'm just like, I can't get this. I'm, I'm thinking like Poirot and Boondock Saints. That's like where my mind has gone, you know, and I love it. I absolutely love it. I think we need to write it. <laughs> I, I would be, Boondock Saints is the ultimate Poirot. Yes. That's yeah. <laughs> like that rewritten, but like set in Southeast England just would be and yes. as a Bostonian, I really should not take Boondock Saints out of Boston, but I will for the purposes of seeing Willem <laughs> Dafoe with a mustache that big. Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, thank you so, so much for being here, Martha. This was like the most fun ever. And um, wh- would you like to be found by our listeners? And if so, where can they find you? Oh, sure. I have I have a website, MarthaJocelynBooks.com, and that's Martha with an E, M-A-R-T-H-E-J-O-C-E-L-Y-N, Books.com. And I'm on Instagram, at Scissorhouse is my... Great. And we will have all of that linked in the episode notes so people can find you, as well as links to all of your Aggie Morton books, which we I really, really recommend people check them out, both for you know younger readers, but also just if you're an Agatha Christie fan, you will enjoy these books. I enjoyed them as an adult reader. They're really fun. Um, the mysteries are really great. So I, I know that you said you were learning on the job, but I think you did such a nice job uh, like building out the mysteries themselves. Thank you so much. And thanks for letting me come on your show. Letting you come. It was such a pleasure. We really appreciate having you. And uh, it was so nice to speak with you tonight. Thanks so much, Martha. Thank you to our producer, Kate Kershaw, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. To stay up to date and get some extra fun info, you can follow us on Instagram at Tea and Murder. Rating and reviewing us really helps, so please do that if you feel so inclined. We're on all your favorite podcast platforms. Remember to follow us there and recommend us to anyone you think might need a little extra tea and or murder in their lives. Our next episode is our first repeat book. We'll be discussing And Then There Were None. You can listen to our first ever episode featuring Stuart Turton to hear his take on the classic before the next episode. Rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookstore, or if you need to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next episode's book can be found in the episode notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We'll be back in two weeks. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.